<laughs> Thank you, team. You can go ahead and be seated. Man, good to see you this morning. It's so good to be uh, together, to be able to lift our voices in song, to be able to look at God's word together. And uh, whether you're here in-house at Thornton or whether you're attending uh, online through YouTube, uh, Facebook, Crossroads Live, wherever you may be, man, it's good to be here today. If we haven't met, my name is Matt Manning. I'm the senior pastor uh, here at Crossroads Church. And I just want to make an invitation to you if you are new. Um, afterwards, I'm just going to be out in the lobby and I would love to get to meet you, uh, to get to know you. I made the same offer at 8 o'clock at 8.30 service. In fact, my offer at 8.30 was to take people out back like I was going to fight them. So I'm changing it, all right? We can, uh, we can meet out in the lobby, and I'd love uh, just to get a chance uh, to see you, to meet you, to know you, to put a name with a face. Uh, that would be really cool for me. Uh, today, we are in week two of our series in Acts, uh, where we are looking at the church. And if you were here last week, then you know this is just like the latest series in a number of series that we will be doing uh, in the book of Acts. So one of our habits here at Crossroads is to go through entire books of the Bible. And because Acts is like so huge, uh, we've decided to break it up into seasons as if we were like, watching a TV show and to take it in chunks as we go through. And really, as we look at Acts, what we're watching is the gospel begin to spread from really this small group of people, like 12 guys, to really a worldwide movement. Now, at any point as we're going through the book of Acts, as we travel through this book, the key passage in helping us understand, helping us kind of get our footing when we're traveling through is Acts chapter 1, verse 8. It's this moment where Jesus is with his disciples after the resurrection, and he comes to his disciples and he says to them, he says that there's going to be the Holy Spirit is going to fall upon them. This divine power is going to come upon them. And as this divine power comes upon them, that they will become his witnesses. They will be Jesus's witnesses. First in Jerusalem and the city centers of, of sharing the gospel, the truth, the story of Jesus there. And then eventually into Judea, Samaria, and the ends of the earth. And what's really cool about Acts 1.8 is that us being here, you and me being here in this place today is the fulfillment of Jesus' words some 2,000 years ago. It's pretty remarkable in that sense. And so last summer, we were in season one, and we looked at really kind of chapters one through seven. And we saw the beginning of the church and the excitement that, that happened after Jesus' resurrection. I mean, like people are coming to know Jesus. Tens of thousands are coming and putting their faith in Jesus as the gospel is spreading around Jerusalem in the city center. And then once we get to chapters seven and eight, all of a sudden persecution breaks out. And what we see is that believers, people who have put their faith in Jesus, it's not just like they're being harassed or tormented, but, but they're, actually, they're actually being killed. Like people are losing their lives because of their faith in Jesus. And all of a sudden, as we're reading 7 and 8, the question enters into our minds, like, will the church survive the persecution? Will the church die with the persecution that has come its way? And we see that the disciples in Jerusalem begin to leave the city center. In fact, they're running from the city center in order to survive. And as they spread out into the regions all around Jerusalem, we see not that the church dies, but it actually begins to surge as it comes into Judea and Samaria. And what we see in the very beginning of Acts is that the church, as it begins to spread, is not thought of as a building like we do in our culture, right? Like, like we say, we're going to church, like it's a place that we go to, but rather the church is this un unstoppable movements, which is really what this section of Acts is all about, that the church is the countercultural movement that creates a new kind of human being. 
And that new kind of human, they, they have new values, they have a new identity, they have new community. That that's what this section is all about, is it's about the church finding its identity. And so if you're here with us last week, we saw at the beginning of chapter 8, we were introduced to this guy named Philip. And Philip is this very courageous evangelist. In fact, he is the very first missionary that we find in all of our faith. He's the very first missionary that is described to us in the Bible. And, and Philip is like the dude, he's like the guy responsible for taking the gospel into the region of Samaria after Jesus' resurrection. And so the first guy that he runs into and shares Jesus with, and the guy who receives Jesus, his name is Simon. And what we know about Simon is that he's a magician, like he does tricks. That's what he does for a living. He was super well known. He was pretty wealthy. And as, he's, uh, as Philip is introducing him to Jesus, as he's, as he's wa- beginning to walk in faith, we see that Simon's theology is like totally whacked out. In fact, he actually believes that he can buy God. That's how he, that's how he like comes to it. Like, like if you could start your faith journey off anywhere, so you can just let me know. But, but if you could do it wrong, Simon does. And the shocking thing is, the shocking thing is, is that this guy, Simon, is welcomed into the church. Bad theology and all. And it's this beautiful picture. It's this beautiful picture that God's got room, that God's got room in his church for those of us who don't have it all figured out yet, which of course is every single one of us. Today we continue to watch Philip and his journey and we find him walking through the desert and as he's walking through the desert, he encounters this Ethiopian eunuch. And as shocking as last week's story was with Simon the magician, you know, the bad theology and all and not knowing the Bible and all this and still being welcomed into the church, Luke, who's the writer of Acts, takes it up a whole nother level with the Ethiopian eunuch. We move in the story of Acts from a story that is just stunning to a story that is scandalous. We pick up the story in chapter 8, starting in verse 26. It says this, Now an angel of the Lord said to Philip, Rise and go towards the south, to the road that goes down from Jerusalem to Gaza. This is a desert place. And he rose and he went, and there was an Ethiopian, a eunuch, a court official of Candace, queen of the Ethiopians, who was in charge of all of her treasure. He had come to Jerusalem to worship and was returning, seated in his chariot, and he was reading the prophet Isaiah. Now, when I read this passage, my imagination begins to go wild. Not for Philip, but for this Ethiopian eunuch. And as I read this, uh, read this passage, I begin to ask type, these types of questions in my mind. I begin to wonder, like, what was, what was the eunuch expecting when he came to the temple in Jerusalem? What was he hoping to find? What was, he, what was he longing for in his soul when he came to Jerusalem? See, as an African in the Jewish temple, he had to feel set apart. That the color of his skin would have separated him from most everyone else there. That when it came to the temple in Jerusalem, it was said to be for all people in order that they might come and worship God. But the reality is it was the most segregated place on earth. You had special designations, special spots for the Jews and the Gentiles. That was like the non-Jews. You had a special spot for men. There was a special spot for women. And if it was only the Ethiopian's skin color that separated him, maybe it wouldn't have been so bad. But as we're told in the story, Luke notes for us that he was also a eunuch. 
And if he's like the majority of eunuchs during this time, some 2,000 years ago, set aside for the service of the royals, then he would have been castrated before puberty, probably around the age of seven or eight years old. Growing up as male, but with a lack of testosterone, things would have been different. He wouldn't have had the, the hair on his arms or on his face. His masculine features would have, been, would have been different. They would have been softer. In our culture today, we have words and, and labels for people not quite masculine enough to be a man, not quite feminine enough to be a woman. Growing up like that, he would have been the object of, of ridicule. He would have been the brunt of every joke. In his adult years, he would have the money. He would have more money than he would probably ever dreamed that he would have in his life. He would have the most coveted positions in the royal family because they would see him as safer. And yet he would be the envy of every single male. And because he was emasculated, because he was emasculated at a young age, he would also be the object of their scorn, be the object of their, of their hates. His in-between status when it comes to gender would make him an outcast among the Jews. They would label him spiritually unclean. And so here he is, coming to the temple with his queen in order to worship God. And there at the temple, there was a special designation for where eunuchs could, could worship. Just like you had places for Jews and places for Gentiles, places for men and places for women, there was a special place for eunuchs. It was called outside. See, according to Jewish law, eunuchs were not allowed to worship in the temple of God. And so here he is, he's seeking. He's, he's made the long journey from Africa to Jerusalem in order to worship God, and yet he can't. And I wonder in the midst of all of the humanity, I wonder in the midst of male and female, Jew and Gentile, I wonder if he's thinking, where, where do I belong? Where do I stand? A guy who always lived on the outside edges of the inner circle, so close but, but not quite there. Have you ever felt that way before? So before he leaves Jerusalem, he's allowed to buy a scroll and he purchases the Isaiah scroll. And on his way home, he's reading the Isaiah scroll. And his mind is turning as fast as the axle on the chariot is below him. And we find these words, verse 29, and the spirit said to Philip, go over and join this chariot. And so Philip ran to him and heard him reading Isaiah the prophet and asked, do you understand what you're reading? And the eunuch replied to him, how can I unless someone guides me? And he invited Philip to come up and to sit with him. Now the passage of scripture that he was reading was this, it was Isaiah 53. And if you've never heard Isaiah 53, what I want you to do is I want you to listen to it through the ears of a eunuch. It begins like this in verse 2. For he grew up before him like a young plant and like a root out of dry grounds. He had no form or majesty that we should look upon him, no beauty that we should desire him. He was despised and, and rejected by man, a man of sorrow and acquainted with grief and as one from whom men hide their faces, he was despised. And we esteemed him not. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows, yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God and afflicted. 
But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with his wounds we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned every one to his own ways. And the Lord has laid upon him the iniquity of us all. He was oppressed and he was afflicted. Yet he did not open his mouth like a lamb that is led to the slaughter. And like a sheep that before its shears is silent. So he opened not his mouth. And again, I begin to wonder as I read this passage. I wonder if as this eunuch read this passage of scripture in Isaiah 53 for the first time, if he found in the scriptures on his way home something that connected with him at a soul level, at a, at a heart level. Something in the Isaiah scroll that, that he identified with, a man of no majesty, of no beauty, a man despised, acquainted with sorrow, oppressed, afflicted, who is this outcast that lives in the midst of humanity. Verse 34, and the eunuch said to Philip, about whom I ask you, does this prophet say this? Is he talking about himself or is he talking about someone else? And then Philip opened his mouth and beginning with the scriptures, he told him the good news about Jesus. I mean, this is so remarkable, isn't it? In Psalm chapter 8, we have the words of the psalmist where he writes this, What is man, O God, that you are mindful of him? What is the son of man that you care so deeply for him? The psalmist is writing this psalm as he's observing God, running after people, relentlessly pursuing people. And what we have here with the eunuch is this beautiful display of God relentlessly pursuing this one individual. Listen, as he does each and every one of us. From Isaiah 53, Philip explains that the outcast in the passage is Jesus. He explains how Jesus was cast out, utterly rejected, so that he could bring in the outcast, so he could bring in those who wondered, where do I stand? For those asking the question, where do I belong? For those who have spent their entire lives living on the outside edges of the inner circle, so close, but not quite there. Philip takes him through Isaiah 53 and he shows him how the life of Jesus was an outcast life. It was a life of an outsider, rejected, persecuted, eventually dying, giving up his life so that he could bring those who were far away from God into his family. And here in the chariots, the eunuch who has lived, who has lived his entire life on the outside is now on the inn. I mean, don't lose the importance of this moment. That he went to the temple with his queen to seek God, but he did not find God in the place that he thought he would find him. In the most spiritually special, spiritually significant place in all of the world, the temple there in Jerusalem, he did not find Jesus or God where he thought he would find him. And said, it's on his way home as he's on the bumpy, dusty path riding through the desert, that God reveals himself to him. That God gives the eunuch the opportunity to hear this message of, of hope and to actually, in the most intimate way, come to know him. The message of salvation is so, so intensely personal. I mean, Philip is sitting here reading Isaiah 53, helping him understand, and undoubtedly, they would not have just stopped at Isaiah 53, but they would have continued on to Isaiah 56. Let me read it for you. It says, let not the foreigner who has joined himself to the Lord say, the Lord will surely separate me from his people. And let not the eunuch say, behold, I am a dry tree. 
For thus says the Lord to the eunuchs who keep my Sabbath, who choose the things that please me and hold fast my covenant. I will give in my house and within my walls a monument and a name better than the sons and daughters. I will give them an everlasting name that they shall not be cut off. There is the eunuch at the center of God's redemptive story that God had this moment planned out from the beginning of time. And in real life, we see the eunuch. We see the eunuch begin to become a part of this movement, this countercultural movement. And with it, we, we see as he, as he begins to, to, to have this new identity in his life, that no longer is he, is he labeled eunuch, but now he's child of God. No longer is, 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 is values all about me, but now it's all about Jesus. We see him enter into this new community, no longer the guy living on the outside edge of the inner circle, but now he's in. That he's a part of the family of God that we call the church. And as part of this movement, he gets baptized, verse 36. And as they were going along the road, they came to some water. And the eunuch said, see, here's water. What prevents me, Philip, from being baptized? And he commanded the chariot to stop. And they both went down into the water, Philip and the eunuch. And he baptized him. And when they came up out of the water, the spirit of the Lord carried Philip away and the eunuch saw him no more and he went on his way rejoicing. Now pay attention to what we're witnessing here. The baptism of the eunuch is the fulfillment of God's plan. In Isaiah 56.3, we just read that the promise given to the eunuchs is that they would not be dry. And here we have in Acts chapter 8, as the eunuch is being plunged into the water, he's coming out literally not dry. With the eunuch's baptism, not only do we see the fulfillment of God's promise, but we see the significance of baptism when it comes, when it comes to this countercultural movement, this, this new community that really is the catalyst of the movement. It's the sign of belonging to the new community by which those who have repented and trusted in Jesus through faith express their union with Jesus in both his death and ultimately his resurrection by being immersed in the water in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. See, when it comes to the church from the very, from the very beginning, baptism, the church believed that baptism expressed union with Christ in both his death and his resurrection. Let me take a moment to explain what that looks like. Probably the most clearest passage in all of the Bible that we have is in Romans chapter 6, verses 3 and 4, and they read like this. It says, do you not know, he's talking to Christians, Roman Christians here, do you not know that all of us who have been baptized in Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? There's an understanding of unity that's happening here. That we were buried, therefore, with him by baptism into death in order that, just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in this newness of life. In other words, when we trust in Jesus, his death counts as our death. His resurrection counts as our resurrection. And in baptism, we dramatically portray we dramatically portray what is happening within us spiritually when we receive Jesus. That our old self of belief, of unbelief, of, of rebellion, of, of idolatry has died. And our new identity as a, as a person of faith who is submitted to Jesus, a child of God, treasuring Jesus with all of our soul now comes into being. And what we confess, or maybe the way that I would say it is that's what we confess when we go down into the water. 
That when we are into the water, we are completely identifying with the death of Jesus, that his death becomes our death. And as we raise up, we are identifying with his resurrection and the new life that comes with him. Now, as I explain this, many people get a little bit confused when it comes to baptism, whether you're reading in the Bible or you hear it in a sermon. And for many people, they think of baptism kind of as like this prerequisite to salvation. That is, baptism is what saves you. Now, let me be very clear here. Baptism does not save us. Only Jesus saves. And we don't have to look any further than the cross to see how true that is. Maybe you remember the story of Jesus on the cross, and as he's hanging on the cross, there's two robbers hanging next to him. And one of the robbers and Jesus kind of strikes up a conversation in their dying breaths. And what comes that we come to realize is that as they're having this conversation, this robber understands who Jesus is, that he sees Jesus for who he is, the one who came and, and died for the sins of the world as the savior of the world. It acknowledges not only who Jesus is, but we see as he's hanging on the cross, this robber trusts Jesus with his life. And as he does, Jesus looks at him and he says some of the most remarkable words that we find in all of scripture. He looks at this robber as he's breathing his last breath and he says to him, I tell you the truth, today you will be with me in glory forever, forever. See, if baptism was what saved us, in this moment, Jesus would be hollering, somebody get a hose in a bucket, like splash this guy down, he's about to die, right? But that's not what's going on here. Because baptism, baptism isn't a prerequisite to our salvation, it is evidence of the salvation that we already have. That when we have repented of our sins, we identify with Jesus and we are surrendering our lives to him. So when it comes to baptism, it's this very mystical part of our faith. It's a very mystical part of our faith because while it does not save us, the New Testament teaching is that, is that this is the thing that connects us, unifies us in the death and resurrection of, of Jesus. It is the concrete moment in your life. It's the concrete moment that all of history can look back upon and see God's grace come upon you. And so here's the good news. It doesn't have to be the first step of belief for you. That's for some of you, you've been, you've been walking with Jesus for years, maybe even decades. And for whatever reason, and I know you have your reasons, but for whatever reason, you decided that you weren't going to get baptized early on when you believed in Jesus. And now it's been years. It's been years. And you, and you look back, and, and every time you think about having or getting baptized, like, like what enters into your life is what I call like a little bit of baptism guilt. And, and all these, these thoughts start running through your head that if you were to get baptized, if, if, if you were to, to get up here and to proclaim your faith, having lived decades with Jesus, what would people think about you? And all of a sudden, embarrassment begins to fill your soul and shame that comes with it. Can I just tell you something? There's nothing embarrassing about getting baptized. There is no shame in declaring Jesus as your savior. This is God's grace in your life. Do not run from it. Baptism is what in part the Bible says is what unifies us with Christ. Don't let your embarrassment or your shame or your pride rob you of experiencing the riches that you have in Jesus. And so whether you've been a believer for 10 minutes, 10 years, or 50 years, baptism is for you.
And I know that there's some others of you who are sitting here, and maybe you've recently come to to Christ. Maybe you've recently trusted Jesus as your Savior. And you're sitting here, and you're waiting. And maybe you feel a little bit like Simon the Magician, right? Like, Like, you don't know where things are at in the Bible, your theology. Like, what is even theology? Shoot, you don't even know when to sit and stand in church, right? Like, like it's all just brand new to you. All you know is you love and trust Jesus, but you're waiting. And you're waiting because, because as you look at your life, like you don't have it all together and, and your life maybe is a bit of a mess. And so you're just waiting to get your life together. Let me tell you that when it comes to baptism, don't wait. Don't wait. Baptism does not require you to have your whole life together. In fact, baptism is an acknowledgement that your whole life is a mess. That's why you need Jesus in the first place. You need a savior. For others of you, you're here. And you're just waiting for that perfect time, aren't you? Like you just think that like God's gonna open up like the, that moment, that once in a moment lifetime where it's like, this is the day that I get baptized. Maybe you're holding out for saving money to go to Jerusalem to be baptized in the Jordan River. You've, you've heard that's a thing that they do over there. Or maybe you're holding out hope that we're gonna restart Lake Baptisms, but you're just waiting for that special moment, that special place that you can get baptized. In this story, part of what I love about this story is that the place is not actually special. There's nothing special about where the eunuch gets baptized. It's in the desert between the most special, significant, religious, holy site on the planet, the Temple of Jerusalem, and the palace that's in Ethiopia. It's the desert. Not anything significant about it, and I think that's the point. That the point is not where we are baptized. It's not even how we get baptized. The, the point is, is what the baptism means. That it's us unifying with Christ in his death and his resurrection. And so this weekend, there's nothing special about this weekend. Spiritually speaking, there is nothing special about this weekend. It's not Christmas. It's not Easter. In fact, if you're into the liturgical calendar, it's called ordinary time because it's not special. But this weekend can be the weekend that you take a step in your faith and decide that you're going to get baptized. So the last thing I have for you before I pray is that today I've talked a lot about Jesus and what it looks like for us to identify with Jesus, to be a part of this movement, this new community, to have this new identity. And when it comes to our culture, identity is a big deal, isn't it? There's a lot of conversation in our culture and in our society today around identity and what identity is and what my identity is and, and how I identify and, and all the rest of that. I want you to know today that when it comes to your identity in Jesus, that is the only identity in this world that is received, not achieved. That your identity in Jesus is the only identity in this world that is received, not achieved. And that's because it's all based on what Jesus has already done for you. That Jesus is a person who actually set aside the privilege and the prestige and the glory of heaven and came into this world in order that he might die for your sins to God and your sins to other people. And the moments that you put your trust in Jesus, the moment that you become a, a Christian by repenting of your sins and believing in him, that you can know that God, that God un, unconditionally loves you. 
that God sees you, that he sees you in your, in your imperfection and, and he loves you as one of his children, that he loves you today as much as he will love you in 5,000 years from now when you are perfect and in heaven with him, that God sees you, that God loves you right now, right as you are, which, mean, which means regardless of who you are, regardless of, of what you've done in this world, whether good or bad, regardless of what the world says you are, you are worthy to be called a child of God. That you are the one that God is relentlessly pursuing today. Just like our eunuch some 2,000 years ago. So here's how I want to finish this up. Is that we're going to put our text line up there. You see it every week if you're a regular, if you're brand new to us. Uh, this is your way to connect with us. But the number is 720-513-1933. And if you're at the point today where you want to have a conversation of what it looks like to believe, to trust in Jesus as your Lord and Savior, or if you're here today and, and you're, you're, I'm putting away all the excuses and I'm ready to get baptized, I'm just going to ask you to text the name of Jesus to that number. Now, as you go about doing that with your cell phones out, we want to end with a little bit of celebration. And so I just want you to sit back and watch our Baptism Rewind of 2022 to see how God is working here at Crossroads Church. The smiles on those faces tells, tells a story of a million words, doesn't it? Before we go to communion, would you just bow and pray with me? Father, Lord, we know that your presence is here, and Lord, that you, Lord, you fill us with excitement of what's happening in this church, in this body, in this family. God, that you're making yourselves known to people, and they are stepping into the waters of baptize, uh, baptism, unifying with your death and your resurrection. And Lord, when that happens, it is more than a symbol. God, we see it on their faces. Lord, it's life with you. And so, Father, today, Lord, we, we thank you. We thank you for making a way with Jesus. We thank you that, that we can come to him just as we are, with stuff not all figured out, with with the different labels and the words that people put on us in the life in life. And Lord, that we can come to you and, and that you're there to receive us. Father, we thank you for Jesus, for our Savior and our Lord, and it's in his name that I pray. The powerful name of Jesus. Amen. Today we come to communion like we do every week as a reminder of, of not just what 
baptism is in our lives, but a reminder of, of what Jesus did on the cross and the way that it impacts us. That on the cross, Jesus's body was broken. His blood was spilt so that we, that we might have life. And so in the utter darkness, we are going to <laughs> eat of the bread together. So let's eat. And to drink of the cup, remembering the salvation that is ours through Jesus. As we continue in worship through music, I'm gonna invite you to stand. We're gonna sing of the, the relentless pursuit of God in every single one of our lives to his glory. If over the next 20 minutes or so you need prayer after church, if you need prayer, we'd love for you just to uh, stop by the banner over here and we have people who would love to pray for you. Let's sing of Jesus' love for us.